All right, so the message of Isaiah. We, um, we're in Isaiah. We're almost not quite to the halfway point, but we're getting, getting there. Um, Isaiah is a long book, but the message of the book is very simple. It's God saves sinners. That's the message of Isaiah. He wants us to know, God wants us to know through Isaiah's uh, pen and through his voice that God saves sinners, that he takes people who are rebellious against him and he brings them along and saves them through Jesus. And Jesus is everywhere in the book of Isaiah, though he's not mentioned by name. uh, We certainly see his handiwork everywhere and we see the finished work of Christ uh, all through these pages. And so the point of Isaiah is that God saves sinners. And now the section of the book that we're in, uh, which started last week in chapter 28, and it'll go to about chapter 35 or so, um, this is a new section of the book. And what Isaiah and well, really what the Lord is going to say through Isaiah is that he has the ability and the power to actually save sinners. So it's not just that God wants to save sinners, but that God will and has the power to do that. And so each chapter from 28 through 35 tackles a different aspect of God's power to save. And so um, we're excited to walk through this section. And then once you get to chapter 36 through about chapter 39, you sort of have this uh, section about Hezekiah and the things that God does with King Hezekiah. And then chapter 40 through 66 is the last section of the book. And it's uh, just a great, great time. So um, we're going we're gonna to work our way through that as we get there. But chapter 29, um, here's one of the things that we're going to hear today. It's something that we need to hear, but we don't always like to hear it. Uh, we, we're not always eager to hear it. But here's the message of chapter 29. God is in control of everything. Now, on one level, that's comforting. On another level, it's disconcerting because it means that we're not in control of everything. So uh, until we lay down our belief that we're sovereign and let God be sovereign, uh, we won't fully appreciate the gospel. And so this this text is all about God's sovereignty. Now, that word sovereignty is a, a fancy word, but it just means that God's in control, that God does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3 says that God sits in heaven and does whatever pleases him. That's sovereignty. That that, that God can be from his throne in charge of everything and do everything that he wants to do. That's sovereignty. We don't have full sovereignty. We certainly make choices and we do things, uh, most of the time sinful things, Um, We're certainly free to do that. But God is able and powerful enough to overcome our unbelief and overcome even our sinfulness to get us where he wants us to be. So the sovereignty of God is everywhere, and yet it's a doctrine that we don't necessarily love because it does get to the heart of our pride. It gets us to a point where we have to say, if he's in control, that means I'm not in control. And that's not comfortable for people, uh, especially in our time of history and where we live in the West. And uh, individual freedom is such a value. And and yeah, there's there's good things about that, but it can become an idol. And it can become an idol that takes the Lord's sovereignty and turns something that's true and biblical into something that we hate. So we need to be careful there. Um, 
So here's what this, this text is going to show us. Uh, there's really three main ideas or sections in this chapter. And um, we, we're going to see that he is, that the Lord is sovereign over his friends and his enemies. That's the first section. That God is sovereign to, to take care of his people and uh, to take care of his enemies. And so we're going to see that in the text. Next, second, the second section is going to show us that God is sovereign even when, or maybe especially when, we don't understand what he's up to. So there's a little bit of mystery in, in what God does. We don't always understand it, but we have a God we can trust. So that's kind of the second point. And then the third point is that God is sovereign over how everything ends, uh, where all of this Christian life is going. And, and ultimately, we know that the end of the Christian life is that we'll be like Jesus. When we're with him, we'll be like him. And that, that whole process is what the Bible calls sanctification. It's where you become a believer and then you go through this process of growing to be like Jesus. And yet the process is painful and slow and agonizing at times. And yet God is sovereign over the sanctification of his people and he'll get us where he wants us to be. So we're going to look at that, those, those sections, but let's just start in uh, the first, which is verse 1 through 8. And uh, we're going to see that God has something very important to say to his friends in 1 through 4, and then something to say to his, his opponents uh, in uh, four, uh, 5 through 8. So let's start. It says this, Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year. Let the feasts run their round. All right, so now he's in this section, he's addressing his people. Ariel is an interesting word. Um, it's, it's a Hebrew word that means altar, uh, hearth or hearth or however you say that word. Um, it's, it's basically the stone structure that the altar was built on where the fire would consume the sacrifices. And so he's using this word to refer to the city of Jerusalem. There's a reason for that. Um, the reason is that Jerusalem was itself viewed as an altar. It was the city where people would gather to do these sacrifices. Where the, that was where it had to happen. It wasn't just willy-nilly anywhere. In fact, we know that King Saul got in trouble with the Lord because he was offering sacrifices where he wasn't supposed to. Um, we know that God took that very seriously. And so Jerusalem, where his temple was, was the place where these things would happen. And so Isaiah is looking at Jerusalem and he's seeing it as an altar where sinners would worship God um, through the sacrificial system. And so uh, we know that Jesus fulfills the sacrifices, which is why we don't kill animals on Sunday morning and you know, try to splatter blood on people. Uh, that's a good thing. But that's because we have a sacrifice, a sacrifice rather in Christ that is uh, once and for all. But in, in Isaiah's day, it wasn't yet done, right? The sacrificial system still happened. And so he's looking at this city and he's calling it this, basically he's calling it an altar, and he says to them at the end of verse one, he says, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. So what's happening in Jerusalem is this ongoing round and round um, series of festivals and feasts and sacrifices. 
And yet the point that God's going to make to his people is that even though they're going through all of these rituals and rhythms and routines, it's getting them nowhere. They're, they're not actually loving God in the process. They're just going through the rhythms. They're going through the motions. It's routine. It's elaborate. It's beautiful in, in many ways, but it's empty. And so um, what happens next may surprise us. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 2. He says, Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I, the Lord is speaking here, I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low from the earth you shall speak. From the dust, your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust, your speech shall whisper. So this is surprising because, again, the context here is he's not talking to his enemies. He's talking to his covenant people. And yet he's going on the attack. Do you hear that? He's, he's going on the attack against them. He says, I will distress you. I, I will encamp against you. I will raise siege works against you. You will be brought low. He's going on the attack against his people. How in the world does that make sense? It doesn't make sense necessarily in our human minds. But again, we're looking at a sovereign God who does whatever he pleases. And so in that context, it makes sense because we need God to go on the attack in our lives more than we know. We need him to do this. Every one of us needs him to do this. We need to do serious business with God. And we need to let him bring about trouble in our lives at times. It's because when he brings us down into the dust, I mean, that's what's happening. He's saying at the end of verse four, he says you will be, or at the beginning of verse four, you'll be brought low. Okay, then he says from the earth you will speak. So as low as you can get onto the ground, your, the dust your speech will be. Um, and, and he says your voice will come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. So you're like basically on the ground just barely able to speak. You can barely cry out for help. And yet, when God brings us down to that level, that low, where we can barely cry out for help, that's when the gospel reveals to us that the Holy Spirit enters in and he begins to intercede with us, for us rather, with groanings too deep for words. Romans 8 tells us that when we don't know how to pray, God prays for us. That's great news. But that's what happens when we reach absolute rock bottom. And when God brings us down to rock bottom, he doesn't leave us there. Instead, he enters in. It's when God becomes the most meaningful to us, when we're brought low. He becomes more meaningful than ever before. And if we, when we yield to his victory, when we yield to his sovereignty, when we let him, not let him, but when we see him win in our lives, 
Um, it's in our defeat that the Lord will then raise us up and, and take away from us what is destroying us in order to set us free. I know that's, that's a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around. Why does God hurt us to help us? And it is one of those mysterious things. I mean, in, in some sense. Uh, um, but we have to recognize that a large part of it is because we're stubborn people. We're stubborn. Nothing has really changed. Uh, the, the theme of the wandering episodes of the Old Testament Israelites, when they're leaving Egypt, they don't believe the Lord, so they don't enter into their, their rest and their promised land right away. Instead, they're, they're sent to wander for 40 years. The, the overarching message of that time was that these are stubborn people. They, the Bible calls them stiff-necked people. And the, the Hebrew idiom that we translate stiff-necked is actually um, basically a stubborn cow. And that's what God calls his people, stubborn cows. And if you've ever, I've never dealt with cows in any positive way except eating them. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm sure that I know I have enough friends that do cattle things and they, they tell me it's not, it's not a comfortable thing. It's just like they're not, they're stubborn animals. And so here's the thing. God is saying to us in the Bible that you won't always understand what he's up to, but we can always trust him. If the Lord surprises us with trouble, he's also going to surprise us with joy. That's the good news. He doesn't destroy us. He may crush us, but he won't destroy us. He may allow us to be persecuted, but he won't leave us abandoned. And often it's our greatest breakthroughs or our greatest breakthroughs happen when we are brought to our lowest point, when we hit the brick wall. Sometimes the most productive things in our lives happen to us when our world falls apart. It's hard to see that. Um, it's hard to see that mostly because we think we have him figured out. And so when, something, when he does something that doesn't fit our category, then it turns us around. Um, but the Lord is full of surprising things. And most of the things that are surprising to us are not pleasant. And so we have to remember this. If we're, if we're in Christ, if, if, we are, if we belong to him, then the Lord will never give us ultimately what we deserve. But in grace, he will give you what you need. And so if you need encouragement, that's what he'll give you. And if you need confrontation, he gives you that as well. God always knows in what ways we need victory and in what ways we need to be defeated. And there's a, there's a little quote, a short quote from C.S. Lewis when he was writing and recounting his own story of becoming a believer in Jesus. If you don't know his story, he, he grew up in a nominal Christian home, so they were sort of going to church, but no one really believed in Jesus. And uh, they just sort of went through the rhythms and shortly after he became a teenager, he decided this whole Christian thing is, is dumb and he became an atheist and really embraced atheism through most of his adult life. And it wasn't until uh, he was in his probably 40s uh, and he had some friends, J.R. Tolkien being one of them, uh, that helped to take him through the journey to Jesus. And it was a long, painful journey for Lewis to get to Jesus. But what he said about his own 
conversion to Christ was this, that every conversion is a story of blessed defeat. I think that's really profound. That every conversion is a story of blessed defeat. That the Lord has to defeat us in order to save us. And because he loves us and is willing to save us, he's going to defeat us. That's what he's telling his people. He's, uh, otherwise, I mean, if it's, and, and again, when, as we get through this text, we're going to see that the Lord doesn't just leave them in the dust. At the end of this, the whole chapter leads to the Lord uh, raising them up and bringing them to what they ought to be. But, but we got to get through the proper uh, pathway. The Lord has to take us down, but he doesn't leave us. So first he deals with his, his people, but now he's going to address his, uh, the people who aren't his people, his enemies, um, his, the people who are against him in every possible way. Look, look at verse 5 through 8. He says, But the multitude of your foreign foes, so foes is another word for an enemy, shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of the nations that fight against Ariel, fight against Jerusalem, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he's eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he's drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion." Uh, here's, here's what God's saying to the enemies of Israel, the, to the enemies of Jerusalem at this point. He's saying, um, you're not going to last long against, in this fight against me. He, he's saying that he's ultimately going to defeat them. Now, again, if, if we put ourselves back in history where Israel was sitting at that point in time, they're looking down the barrel of an Assyrian evasion. Uh, they're looking at uh, uh, Egypt, and they're looking at all of these other nations that hate them. And they're probably not seeing how this is going to go well for them. And, and the Lord doesn't promise that everything's going to go well for them on earth, but he does say that he's going to take care of them. Uh, ultimately, he's going to uh, conquer their enemies. He's ultimately going to make them like, just like a dream that passes in the night. And it's gone, right? When you wake up, it's gone. And so he's, he's talking about this and saying he's going to beat his enemies. And we, we need to recognize that the Lord is still actively engaged in uh, saving people. Again, he defeats his enemies primarily through saving them. But for those who will not be saved, he has justice. But it's, but it's an encouraging thing because when you think about in our world how many times people who are, who are hostile to God, hostile to Jesus, they just seem to be prematurely... Uh, kind of creating this, uh, this vision of, of the church being destroyed. We see it biblically, we see it in history, and biblically we see it in, in Acts 23. Uh, there's, a, there's an interesting story there where over 40 men 
uh, committed an oath, uh, committed to an oath that they would not eat uh, or drink until they had assassinated the Apostle Paul. And uh, spoiler alert, they didn't succeed in that. But they believed that if they could kill Paul, they could kill the church. That if they could, like, you know, bring about this total uh, just collapse of the church if they could just kill Paul. And so they promised and vowed not to eat or drink until they accomplished that. And it's funny to think when, when years and years later, when Luke was writing these things down, and what we now know as the book of Acts, and he gets to that part of the story and sees Paul still going on, still doing his work, still in full strength, he's probably, he was probably smiling thinking about those 40 dudes. <laughs> what happened to those guys? I bet you they ate pretty quickly after a while, right? They committed that they were gonna, they'd starve to death if they didn't kill Paul, but I doubt that happened. And so, again, you just see their, their attempt to thwart the work of Christ failed. We see it also in history, though. We see uh, at, the, at the high tide of the Enlightenment, um, this man named Voltaire, um, philosopher, uh, he claimed that by the early 19th century, so we're in the 21st century, by the, he predicted by the, end of the, by the early 19th century that the Bible would have passed, quote, into the limbo of forgotten literature. Uh, here we are. Bible's open. It's not obsolete, is it? Voltaire was wrong. In fact, it wasn't long till he got proven wrong because the Second Great Awakening replaced the Enlightenment historically um, and got rid of the arrogance of the Enlightenment and replaced it with Christian devotion across American society. Voltaire was wrong. More recently, although still a little bit beyond my, my time, um, you probably know about a guy named John Lennon uh, from the Beatles. I, I love John Lennon. I love the Beatles. Okay, this is nothing against them, but um, I grew up on the Beatles. My dad was a big fan, and so we listened to them all the time. Um, and so I don't say this with any contempt towards, towards him or anything, but he, one, one of the famous quotes he had was this before his death. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. He said then, I don't even need to argue with that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. He says, we, the Beatles, are more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Um, so again, there's been predictions many times that Christianity, you see it even today, you see philosophers talking today about the church is in decline and, you know, that um, the, especially in America, you see the, the people that are checking Christian on the census uh, boxes are, that, that number is shrinking. There's no doubt that that's true in, in the data. But um, what's happening is it's not that there's fewer Christians, it's just that there's fewer people who pretend to be Christians. And that's okay. Like it doesn't, doesn't change anything. But then when you get outside of the West, and you start looking at Africa and South America and China and many other parts of, even the parts of the Middle East, we're seeing massive growth in the, in the church. Nothing is, nothing's stopping the Lord. And I do believe that even in North America, the Lord's not done with us by any means. Um, it's just that we're in a kind of a turbulent time and things are shuffling, and, but the Lord will be victorious. 
And so we're seeing his sovereignty over his friends and his enemies. We see that the Lord will ultimately prevail through everything that happens on earth. But let's keep going. We got a lot more of this, this chapter to talk about, so let's keep moving along. And we're going to start in verse uh, 9 here, uh, 9 and 10. Really, this next section is really dealing with some mystery that the Lord uh, has in things that we don't understand. But that's 9 through 14 is this next section. But let's look at verse 9 and 10. He says, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and he has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. Isaiah is um, very frustrated with the people of Israel. Uh, They are spiritually apathetic. They have really no interest in what the Lord has to say. They're consistently ignoring Isaiah's words. We saw that in chapter 28 pretty clearly. They make fun of him. They mock him. They hate him. Um, he's, he's not got a great uh, group of people that are listening to him. And so here in verse 9 and 10, he basically is blurting out um, that, in essence, go ahead and be blind if that's what you want. He's frustrated with them. He, he's saying to them, you have, you have so offended God that even as you continue to worship, going through this round and round motion in Jerusalem, he's going to darken your minds from understanding the gospel. Now, that way of thinking doesn't make sense to us, does it? We don't understand how this can work. We don't even understand how this could be fair. But we need to respect the reality that God is mysteriously working in closing some people's hearts and opening others. And I don't know that I can really explain that, but it's what the Bible says, and so I have to respect it. Whether I like it or not, whether I want to believe it or not, uh, you know, those are, those are different questions, but it is what it is, and we receive it. And he's telling them that, that, that he's going to close their eyes. He's going to cover their heads. And they're, they're, just, they're, they're willingly blind, but it's like the Lord is almost adding to that blindness. It's interesting. It's mysterious. I don't pretend to have all the answers. But let's keep reading. Verse 11 and 12 says, And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot read. Now, what is that? Um, well, here's the thing. He's, again, he's describing the people that he's speaking to. And basically, he's saying everybody, whether they're intelli- not intelligent, how about this, educated or uneducated, okay? Um, he's saying to them, there's educated people who have no interest in what God has to say. And there are uneducated people who have no interest in what God has to say. He, he's saying this, this is all... Uh, like the words of a book that's sealed. And so you give it to one guy who can read. Uh, and again, this, in that day and age, not everybody could read. It's not like it is today where most people can read. Um, back then, it was really just the educated that could read. And so you, you hand it to this educated guy, and you say, here's a book, read it. 
and he makes an excuse. He goes, I can't read it because it's sealed. He doesn't even try to open it. He just looks at it and goes, don't want it. And then you give it to the guy who can't read and you hand it to him and say, read this. And his answer is, I can't read, which is true. But again, there's, there doesn't seem to be any indication in this person's life that he wants to learn or cares. He's just like making his excuse. Read it. Oh, I can't because it's sealed. Read it. Oh, I can't because I can't read. Again, from neither of these guys is there an interest in what God has to say. The point is this, that there are people, whether you're educated or uneducated, who are hardened to the word of God. They have no interest in it. And, and the blindness that Isaiah is lamenting is not the darkness of a primitive pagan culture out in some jungle somewhere. His, the blindness that he's worried about is the, the tiring, routine worship of the people in covenant with God. We need to be warned about this because we're here, we're at a church where you guys come Sunday after Sunday, but is your heart in love with Jesus and his word or are you just here? To, to check the box off in your mind. We need to be warned about this because we're going to keep going here and we're going to see again the spiritual climate of the people of Israel in verse 13 um, and uh, following here. He says this, The Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. All right, so the Lord speaks to these people that are uninterested, closed off from the word of God, have no interest in it, And he's saying essentially this, I'm really tired of just their lip service. He's talking to these people and he's saying, "You, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. What's interesting is that Jesus actually applies this text. Um, He quotes this text and he applies it to the Pharisees. Not much had changed between Isaiah's day and Jesus's day. And I don't know that that much has changed between Jesus' day and our day. Uh, I I think we're we're consistently seeing people who have very little love for Jesus but can say all the right things. And that's what was happening with the Pharisees. They said the right things. They did the right things. But their fear of God here is mentioned your fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They, even their fear of God was just some doctrine that they learned, and they, so they, they abided by it. There was no actual heartfelt love or fear of God. The fear of him, um, even in this interior dimension of worship, was, was really just taught by human instructions. It was just an idea. It was just a concept. It was just in their minds. It was an answer to a question. It wasn't a spirit-imparted awareness of the transforming work of God's sovereignty. They, they went through the motions, but they avoided God. 
They, they didn't want him to control their hearts. They wanted to control him. They wanted to set limits on him and put him in their box. I think we really do need to ask the question, what do we prize? Are we prizing our traditions or are we prizing, are we prizing Jesus? He's, he tells us we can't serve two masters. Can't divide our hearts. We have to choose between authentic worship or pious blasphemy. And don't, don't kid ourselves. Don't look at the Pharisees and go, I want to be like them. I, I'm, I was scandalized one time by hearing somebody say, uh, a believer, and it was one of those things that you had to like decide, what am I going to do here? This is horrible. Um, but somebody was like, I'd rather be a Pharisee than one of the sinners that Jesus meets. And I was like, blink, 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 blink. I'm like, really? Because every sinner Jesus meets repents and turns to him. <laughs> and the Pharisees die in their sins. you want to be those guys? Really? Interesting. But I know what they were saying. They were suggesting that I just want to have a good, decent life. I just want to be a good person. And the Pharisees were doing the right things. Yeah, but their hearts were far from him. So what's worse? <sighs> Anyways. But here's the thing. I, I mean, I, I've heard people say that, but I've, I've lived that. So I'm not judging them because I've lived that way. I maybe have never said that out loud, but I've certainly lived it. Going through the routine and the motions, and uh, I, I'm sure that many of you have as well. So we need to be warned here. We need to be careful that our hearts are near to him, not just that we give him lip service. He doesn't want you to say the right things and not love him. I think he would rather you say, even in some ways, this might sound crazy, but I think he'd rather us say the wrong things and actually love him and then be corrected in the wrong things we say. And so um, we, I think we, we need to get there, but... Um, the, the real heart of what Isaiah is trying to get to, and I think we can make this point very, very well because this is how Jesus applies this text, is that what he wants from his people is genuine devotion. And we need genuine devotion. We all need to be devoted to Jesus. Um, here's, here's why. Uh, I'll, go, I'll just go through the line. No matter where you fall in, this, in these examples, um, we'll start with, with those of you who are older. I won't say old, but I will say older. Older, middle-aged, um, whatever you want to say, however you want to describe it, who cares? But people who have been around the block a little longer, why do you need the power of godliness in your hearts? Here's why, among other things, but at least this. You have so much wisdom that needs to be passed down. Here's the thing that I've seen, uh, and, I, and I'm not trying to point to, I'm not pointing at anybody in particular, but I, I've encountered a lot of people who have reached a certain point in their life and their, their mentality shifts to, I've paid my dues. I don't need to be involved anymore. I don't really need to, to I'm just going to ride it out till I get to heaven. And can I just encourage you not to be that way? I'm telling you, I, some of the best things in my life have been, God's grace in providing me with 
older seasoned pastors who are old enough to be my fathers or grandfathers that have loved me and have helped me and I need them. And I, I don't know that they need me, but I certainly need them. If you have walked with Jesus a long time, you have a lot to give. Don't think that it's over. And so don't let the, the complacency and the apathy rule your heart. Have the power of godliness grow in your heart so that you can keep doing his work in whatever capacity that is. So moving from there, you also have young families and a a lot of our church is in this boat. But why do we as young families need the power of godliness in our hearts? Well, again, many, many things, but at least one thing is that it's because we're forging the convictions that will shape our home for eternity. We have a, a responsibility as we are in the thick of it with the dirty diapers and the crying babies and the obnoxious snotty noses and all these other things, we are still working and needing the power of Jesus to help us shape the homes that we are living in and the children we're raising. But not everyone's married, not everyone has kids, and so there are some of you who are single in this room, and you need the power of Jesus and his godliness in your hearts because it's so easy for you to forsake single-minded devotion to Jesus for lesser things. You have an opportunity. The Bible says that singles have an opportunity to be single-mindedly devoted to Jesus and all the work that he has. (coughs) Don't lose that. Students and teenagers need the power of godliness in their hearts because they're being targeted in this world with brilliant and attractive seductions. I've, I've bought into them. You've bought into them. As Lord has worked out us through the life that we're living, we, we get back to Jesus. But I don't, I don't know a single teenager who hasn't had the, the draw away from Jesus because of all the things that we have. Children, young children, need the power of godliness in their hearts because while they're young, they're so open to the gospel. And we need to trust that the Lord will use that openness to set them apart for him. The Bible tells us that this is the the work of the church as well, that as we gather together, one of the beautiful things that happens is we can encourage each other in these things. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, he says to Timothy, who is a younger pastor, uh, and so in the context, he's a younger guy, and he says, do not rebuke older men but encourage them as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. So the church is meant to interact with all these generations, and we should be encouraging one another as a family. We don't need to be riding everybody in rebuke, but encouraging but the, the encouragement comes in different forms, right? If it's an older and a younger person, the encouragement comes in the form of father-son, that dynamic. If it's more peers, it's brother or sister, it's it, right, it, women and, and men, it's mothers and sisters and uh, brothers and sons and all that. And we're seeing this call. 
But it's one of the things that we have to guard our hearts against. We have to guard our hearts against just routine motion. We need devotion to Jesus for him to, for him to work his power among us. All right, let's keep going. One more section here, uh, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Um, let's read it. It says, Ah, you who hide from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. So now we're seeing uh, this, again, progression here uh, of of hard-heartedness. And now we've entered into a phase of what we'll call practical atheism. Um, There's no indication that there were atheists in the Old Testament era. There were monotheists, there were uh, polytheists, there were, but there was very little atheism. I don't know that there was any actual, like, there, I don't think we see any example of a society that doesn't have a god of some kind. Many of them have many gods. Uh, but what we do see is practical atheism, living as if God's not a relevant factor. Um, here's the thing that Isaiah is telling us. Um, He's telling us that our unbelief does not neutralize God. Our unbelief is actually where God starts out with us. So everybody starts with God and unbelief. And God has to get us to belief. And so this this is just dealing with the sovereignty of God, right? That God's sovereignty can overcome our practical atheism. The, the practical atheism here in Isaiah exposed in these two verses, 15 and 16, he's saying, you might sit there and go, oh, yeah, uh, God can't see me or God can't hear me or whatever, right? You pretend like it, none, none of it matters. But then he says in verse 16, Um, you're just clay that the Lord is working with. You have no right to tell him that he can't do something with you. In fact, in uh, Romans, Paul uses that verse, chapter, uh, verse 16, um, to to explain the sovereignty of God and salvation, which is, of course, a hard topic. And um, one one of the things that he does is he quotes this and he says, listen, potters can do what they want with their clay. Um, People who make things can do what they want with the things that they make. And so um, basically his his response is, who are you to say to God, why did you make me this way? Uh, We can't say that rightly because God is God and we are not. And yet we live in a a spirit of autonomy so much of the time that we can say, well, who sees us, who knows us, um, but this blindness to God's work in our lives doesn't defeat him. It doesn't take down his sovereignty. Um, in fact, human defiance is the madness, the craziness, the, the insanity that we live in is what his grace builds upon to create something new. 
Our unbelief is actually the raw materials that he uses to build his kingdom. So be encouraged in that because our, our belief that we can just shut him out doesn't actually shut him out because he's sovereign. If he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Let's keep going quickly here. Is it, uh, it says in verse 17, Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffer cease and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out, of, out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and with an empty plea turns aside him who is in the right. Now here's what Isaiah is doing here. He's seeing the, this example of his own day, this forest of Lebanon. And he sees the forest of Lebanon as, the, as a picture, as a symbol of human nobility and might. But what he tells us is that God's going to cut down this forest. He's going to humble it into just a common field that he can then grow great things out of. See, the Lord has been at work in all of history to bring about a people, but the process of getting his people there requires a breaking down their pride. But this this is describing salvation. These verses are describing what the Lord does in our lives, right? It says, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the meek will obtain fresh joy in the Lord. This is what the Lord is growing in his people, even as he cuts us down and creates um, just humble people. He, he's, in other words, what he's doing is he's beginning this process with sovereign grace, he continues the process of salvation in sovereign grace and he will finish all of this in sovereign grace. We need to trust him in that even if it's perplexing on what his strategies are. The Lord's strategies with us may confuse us, but his work is clear. And our part in all of this is humble, being humble before him, being meek. All right. Two, three more verses, we'll finish. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of God, uh, of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. The Lord's not done with us. There may be seasons in which we wander, but the hope of the gospel is that those who go astray will come to understanding. And those who murmur, complain, gripe, whatever, will, will accept instruction. The greatness of our God is that he is sovereign to overcome any of our obstacles. We just trust him. We need to trust him in our own lives to do with us what he wants. We also need to trust him in hope with the people we love who don't know him yet, that he can take them and do something 
amazing with them. Don't give up hope in what the Lord will do. The Lord has enabled all of these things through his sovereign grace, ultimately done and accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection for us. So let me, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll respond to him in worship and through communion this morning. Father, we thank you that you have um, loved us enough to overcome us, that you've loved us enough to defeat us, uh, that you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we pray, Jesus, that you would work in our hearts as you would, um, as you would will, that you would overcome any of the pride that we have and that you would help us to trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.